You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Wesley, one of the pastors here at King's Church, and it's great to have you with us as we continue in our study uh, at Romans. Today, we're going to find ourselves in Romans chapter 6, looking at true freedom in Christ. Now, one of the realities of this world uh, is something that sometimes referred to the art of deception, or we can just call it lying, right? That's the easy way of saying it. Uh, and it really influences a lot of the outcomes of this life. On a bigger scale, the art of deception is used in warfare uh, in ways that can help determine the outcome of a, of a war or a battle. Uh, it's used in a financial world, uh, sometimes in schemes like uh, multi-level marketing, or uh, Ponzi schemes, uh, yeah, or are they the same thing? Um, or even, even people's fame or climb to fame, uh, deception is a way uh, to get to where we can get. Now, it's, it's come quite often in life that we use deception, uh, but one way I have found that deception is just easily used uh, is actually with kids. Now, I have kids, so as a parent, I have, have, have to say I have used the art of deception on them. Uh, but, but even as a child, right, I, I have parents, I, I can remember very vividly um, learning things later in life uh, that were not true, that my parents told me. And so uh, I didn't want to throw them under the bus, nor do I want to throw myself under the bus. So I decided to go to Twitter and look at what people say on Twitter that they have lied to children about. So here are just a few on the screen. Number one, don't swallow your gum or it will uh, be stuck in your body for seven years. Did your parents ever tell you that? Yes, okay. I was so mortified the first time I swallowed gum, uh, thinking that was true. Next, this is really bad. Uh, the ice cream truck turns its music on when it's out of ice cream. <laughs> That's just low. Like, that is so, so low. Uh, can you imagine the joylessness of hearing that music? Here's one. Uh, if you cross your eyes, they will get stuck like that. Uh, did your parents ever tell you that? Uh, my parents told me that a few times. Uh, here's one I think I actually have used for my kids. Broccoli are little magical trees that make you grow. Uh, try to get them to eat those greens, man. It's hard. All right, here's another one. Uh, Bambi's mother just got lost in the woods. She came back right after the movie ended. <laughs> this, is, this is bad. Uh, one more. It's illegal to turn our light on in the car. I was 29 before I learned this was a lie. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have said that to my kids, uh, so I, I have to admit that one. Now, look, I use this as a silly illustration because lies are so normative in life. Um, we, we use it and we know it, we hear it. It's a fact of life, it's all around us. Deceit uh, is something that's just commonplace in this life, but uh, I think there's a deceit that we tend to believe that we pass off as just another, uh, another thing that um, we don't give much value to. A deceit that actually impacts all of us. Uh, a, a deceit that we think uh, isn't true, but reality is perhaps one of the most true lies that we tell ourselves every single day. And, and particularly if you grew up in the West, it's an underpinning of our society. And that is simply this, that we are free. One of the greatest deceits in life is to believe that we are truly free. That in and of ourselves, we have the freedom to follow our hearts and our own desires. To be masters of our souls. To be the captain of our fate. In fact, we want to believe this so true that, that our modern idea of freedom comes from this. And, and I think it's actually a, a fatal assumption that we've made what freedom is. To be free from a modern perspective is to be free from restraint. 
from control, free from burden, from others, from orders. We want to believe the famous words of the poet William Ernest Henley so badly when he writes, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Are we really, though? Are we really that free in this life? Are we really the masters and captains of our soul and our fate? Or do we have other masters? Now, Paul might actually shock us here in his answers in Romans 6, because what he's going to say is a resounding yes, we actually do have other masters in this life. That we're not as free as we think we are. And yet what I want us to see behind this today is that there is a hope in this passage, a, a beautiful hope, a hope that we can actually experience a freedom in life, more true and more beautiful than anything that can come from within our own desires or our own power. A freedom that is not freedom from any restraint or from, uh, a freedom from, from control, but a freedom that actually comes when we attach our lives to the life of another. In essence, our main idea today is going to be that. That true freedom in this life is found in our union with Christ. Said another way that Christians, we believe that we are united to Jesus in a way that we participate not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. That the gospel is the one thing that can free us from the mastery of sin. Because everything else that we look to in life that, that screams freedom from within our own souls is nothing but a deception of control and freedom. But we're going to find a day that freedom comes from putting our faith in Jesus, and we do that, serving Christ becomes the most true and freeing thing in this world. And so our outline is going to flow straight from the text today. We're going to answer three questions uh, from Romans 6. Number one, we've already kind of teased this up a little bit, but what is our spiritual deception? What are we believing in this life about ourselves that's actually deceiving us? Number two, how do we experience true freedom then? And number three, how do we then live an empowered life in this world as we experience that true freedom? So let's go ahead and dive in. Now, as we answer this first question, what is our spiritual deception? Let's just kind of give a recap of where we are in the book of Romans. The first five chapters of Romans, Paul is really explaining to us how we can experience this objective reality of being justified before God. How can we stand before a holy God and not be condemned? How can, we, how can we live this life without any feeling of condemnation? How does that happen? Well, he doesn't say, and in fact, he argues against the idea that we are justified by trying to live up to some kind of moral religious code. He says that if we try to do that, it's going to crush us. But what he does say in the first five chapters is he gives this long, beautiful argument that in order to be justified is to put our faith in the crucified Jesus. The Christ on the cross is the one who took our sins upon his life. He took our guilt upon himself. And in doing so, he took the final consequences of our sin upon himself, he, he, that our lives were emptied upon his life on the cross. Therefore, we get his righteousness. We gain his righteousness. That's the whole argument of the first five chapters. That we have a righteousness that's not of our own. That we are right, we are justified in the eyes of God, and in doing so, we experience his grace unmerited favor. And if we've experienced that grace, Paul actually says something about that grace at the end of chapter 5 leading into chapter 6. He says that grace is so powerful, he says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. In other words, Paul is saying that our sin, we can't out grace in this life. What he's saying here is that our sin isn't more powerful or more effective than what Jesus has done on the cross for us. 
That grace is actually more definitive in our lives than our sin. Which leads us then to this first question of Romans chapter 6. Well then, Paul, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, why stop sinning then, Paul? Paul, what is the incentive to not keep sinning if grace abounds every time I sin? Is there any incentive for modifying my life towards what's true and beautiful? What keeps me from just doing what I want to? That's basically what Paul is asking here. Now, Paul is writing to a society that really has two big kind of uh, intellectual schools of thoughts. These are very generic. There's a lot of underpinnings of this, but there's two kind of generic schools of thoughts. There's, there's uh, first century Judaism, right? The, the scribes of, of this uh, time and era of, of Judaism, which really leaned into their morals. The reason they leaned into their morals is because they believed that the reason why they continued to be conquered by other people, whether it's the Babylonians, the Persians, or even now the Romans, was because they had been unfaithful to God's law. And so they lean deeply into obedience to the law. Obedience to the law, that is the way that, that, that we will actually experience freedom. And so they might attack this question and say, well, Paul, are you saying that how, how can grace be an incentive for obedience? How, how can we have incentives to be moral if, if we just get grace when we sin? So he's, he's, a, he's addressing that camp. And then on the other camp, you have the Greco-Roman Roman world, which, again, I, I admit had a ton of different varieties of philosophy that they lived by. One of the underpinnings of the Greco-Roman society in the first century was this idea that our bodies don't matter. But what ma- does matter, no, no pun intended there, what does matter is the, the spirit and the soul. And, and so kind of the underpinning of society was do whatever you want to with your body. It doesn't matter. Just follow your own desires. And, and that's just kind of follow your heart because that's what really matters. And so we might say, well, well, then this question is addressing that. Well, if, if we have grace, then does, does that give us license to do whatever we want? Does that give us license just to follow our own hearts? Right? And, and maybe you've never phrased it that way, but have you ever come to the place in life where you just say, I can sin knowing God's going to show me his grace? Have you ever told yourself that it's okay to sin because he's going to forgive me? I, why, why struggle with this again? I, I, could just, I could just receive his grace, right? And what Paul's going to do is he's, he's addressing that hard issue, not only in both camps, whether those who lean towards license or those who lean towards legalism, but he also addresses our heart here. And how he does it was, is actually a, another rhetorical question that he brings to the table. And it will help us understand this first one. Look at verse 15. He says, What then? Are we, to, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? A resounding by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves, verse 16, to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, when we read verse 16, uh, it it kind of strikes us with with some shocking language, right? Uh, When we read that, in the first century, they would read that, and it, it wouldn't strike them the same way it strikes us, because let's just be honest, anytime we see Things like present yourselves as slaves, we filter it through our, our historical experience with kind of the race-based uh, slavery of the New World, and immediately images begin to conjure up in our minds of the transatlantic slave trade and the American South and so on. But that's not really how the original readers would, would have read that, right? Because in, in their society, race had little to do with slavery. Imagine it this way. You live in a society where there's no banking system, no insurance companies, no welfare state, there's no career advisors, no job centers, there's no safety nets whatsoever, right? Sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? Uh, it makes us more grateful for what we do have. That, that is the world in which they were living in. 
And guess what? Things went horribly wrong in the first century. There, there were times where things went ho- horribly wrong. Maybe you lost a business or a flood came and wiped out your farm. But even in that, you had one option left. You had one thing that you could do, and that was you could sell yourself into slavery. Now, it, it wasn't the best option, right? Let's make no illusions about that. It's not, it's not the greatest thing in the world. It, it, it wasn't ideal, but it was better than destitution in that society, right? And oftentimes the norm was if you sold yourself into slavery, once you paid off your debt, you could buy your freedom. And people did. But let's face it, it's still, uh, you still had to offer yourself as a slave, right? Even in that society, it meant that you lacked autonomy. Even in that society, it meant that you had a master that you had to obey. And Paul's using this, and he's, he's actually drawing this now to our spiritual state. And what he's saying here is he's posing the question, and he says, you're either, you're either a slave to the mastery of sin, or, or you're a slave to what he says is obedience. There's these two sides of a seesaw. There's no in-between. He, he's saying either, either you're, you're unconditionally serving God or you're a spiritual slave, slave to something else. There's no alternative here. Right? Either God is your God or something else has mastered you. Right? And, and what he's drawing on is the fact that every single one of us falls into one of these categories. There's not a single person in this room that does not have something that, that they draw upon for meaning in life, something that is actually controlling them, because at the end of the day, it's something that we've offered ourselves to in order to get something. It's something we've fully given ourselves to in order to receive something of worth in this life, something of value, something of meaning in this life. Paul says we all have done that. But what exactly is under, under that? Well, he says in verse 12, he gives an example of what this is. He says, let not sin... Therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey what? What are you obeying? It's passions. What is driving the obedience? What is mastering us? What are are we giving our lives over to? He says it's passions. Your translation may say lust, desires. Uh, Sometimes we think of that and we immediately think negative things, right? We think of like the, the, uh, we we think of things like uh, sexual lust or or something of that nature that the word passion might convey, but it's so much bigger than that. And in fact, what the word means, we've said this before, what, the, what this actual Greek term means here is actually an excessive obsession of something. And oftentimes, it was an excessive passion or obsession of something good. He's not just simply drawing on the fact that we have these evil desires, that we act on these evil impulses that we act on, that we commit these sins and they master of us. He, he actually says, no, it can be something good that you're just obsessing over that you have an excessive passion for. In other words, you're addicted to it. You have to have it in order to have meaning in this life. It's not just something good in your life anymore. It is something that has become ultimate to your existence. And we might have, you know, again, we might look at this and say, well, okay, uh, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm religious, right? Like, I, I, I follow the law. I, I try to follow the right things. I try to do the right things. There's, no, 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 I don't, I don't have mastery over uh, a sin in my life. Well, even something as good as morals and doing the right thing can still be mastering you. Or you might say on the opposite spectrum, no, I don't worship guys. I'm not religious at all. I don't, I don't worship things. Well, Paul's addressing the fact that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you believe in the existence of God at all. Something is ultimate in your life. Something is so important to you that it is mastering you, that it, it, that it drives you, that it controls the way in which you respond. And so how do we understand what these passions are that we're obeying? How, how, how might we understand what passions we're obeying and how they're affecting us? Well, here's kind of a two-step process to help us. Number one, 
uh, just ask yourself this question. What is it right now that you share so much that if you lost it, life would not be worth living? I mean, what is it right now that you, if you, if you, if you cherish so much in life right now that if you were to lose it this very moment, you would immediately feel the first emotion would be life is not worth living anymore. That's something that's become ultimate. And, and just trace back how your emotions are affected by these things, right? I mean, if something's good in our lives and, and we're, we're threatened that we might lose it, we, we, we might be filled with some anxiety, right? I mean, if something is like the center of our lives and it's threatened, we're paralyzed, aren't we? Or if something may be taken away from us that, that is good in our lives, we, we're probably going to get angry. It's right to get angry about that. But if something is the center of our very being is taken away from us, we are enraged. We're bitter. We're out of control. Do you, do you see how these things master us? We're not as in control as we think we are. They drive us. They, they drive the way in which we respond to the world around us because they wear, they're the things that we draw our ultimate value from. It could be something as simple as work, right? We love work here in D.C. Uh, we're, we're, we like to talk about how much we work, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I worked 80 hours this week, man. It was a grind, you know. Workaholics is who we are. But you know why that's who we are? We know we overwork, but there's something underneath that. It's the God of achievement. It's the God of success. It's the God of money that is driving us to continue to do that. And it's mastered us. Or, or perhaps you're in a relationship right now and you know it's not a good relationship, right? People around you know it's a bad relationship, right? But why can't you get out of that? Well, it's because you're obeying his passions. You can't imagine not being in that relationship because it, it brings you so much worth and value that if you were to pull out of that, it would it'd be the ultimate thing in your life. Uh, the, the affection of that man or that woman is so potent in you that it's literally controlling you in the moment. Paul says, whatever it is, we, we all have it. We're all struggling with it. No one of us actually lives for our own desires, which then helps us go back to the first question and answer it. Because how are we to say, well, if, if it's all grace, then why do we do God's will? If it's just grace, why can't we keep sinning? Why can't we just do what we want to? And Paul's answer is, that's comical. That's naive because that's not how the human heart works. You're not doing what you want to do. You're being mastered by something. We're all being mastered by something. Something is controlling the way in which we live our lives. And if it's not God that we're fully giving ourselves to, then we're absolutely out of control. And, and if it's morality, if it's religion that we're giving ourselves to, and we're trying to, to uh, obtain worth out of that, then we're going to be crushed by it. Uh, but, if, but if it's something else that we're giving ourselves to, a desire of our hearts that we're giving ourselves to, then we're going to be enslaved by it. And Paul says all of us struggle with this. None of us are actually free to do what we want to. We're all mastered by something in life. So that's the deception we tell ourselves, that we're free. The spiritual deception is that we, we don't understand that the state that we're actually in is one where we're mastered. So then how do we experience true freedom then? If that is the state that all human beings are in in some point of their lives, how do we then experience true freedom? Look back at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Who is he talking about here? He, he, he's talking about those who have been baptized. Well, who are the baptized? They're the people who have given their lives to Christ. That's who he's talking about here. People who have given their lives to Jesus, who are following him, 
and he uses baptism to symbolize the reality of their lives, which is what baptism does, right? He wants us to see what it symbolizes here. That just as we go under the water, we are going under in Christ. We're buried with him. And then we come out of the water, we're coming out as something new. Like there's a new attachment now. There's a new attachment to Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. And what we call this is we call it union with Christ. We're united with Jesus. And what that simply means is that if we have Christ, if we've been united with him, then what is true of Christ now becomes true of us. Isn't that amazing? The beauty is that when we're united with Jesus, what is true of him becomes true of us. What belongs to Christ now belongs to us by his grace. Not through our efforts, not through our rules, not through our works, not through our sufferings, not through our payment, not through anything we've done. It's all through the grace of God. We, we now get what Christ deserves and we receive what Christ has earned. That's what Paul's saying here. That when we have died with Christ, when we go under the water, when we are buried with him, we have died with him, it, it means that we are free from the guilt of anything that we've done. It's as if it's, it is gone to the, he has gone to the cross, he has paid it in full. There is no condemnation now. You're free from that guilt. That's what he means. And then he says, you are raised with him. What does he mean by that? Resurrection. But, but more so than that, where was Christ raised to? Well, Colossians tells us, he is raised to the right hand of the Father that Jesus right now is sitting at the right hand of God. I mean, think about it this way. When, it, when a king would, if a king would send his son uh, into a dangerous mission the, and the son, return, uh, the son returns noble, he returns wise, he returns powerful, brave, loving, when he comes back in triumph, what does the king do? The king embraces him with love and delight because his son has returned. And what does he do? He puts him in the seat of honor. He sets his son at the right hand of the throne. And the same is true. Jesus right now is sitting on the throne. He is at the right hand of the Father. And we know all the things that he has done, all the beautiful things that he has done is being proclaimed in the, the heavens are proclaiming the glory of God. It is being proclaimed to the world what Jesus has done. But notice the text says, we too are raised with him. Which means today, the, the true freedom we have in Christ is to know this, that when we're raised with Christ, that means that God delights in us as he delights in his son that we too are given a place of honor. That when God looks at us, he, he sees us as he sees his son. He delights in us just as he delights in his son. He gives honor to the son. He delights in us as his children now. Why do we start here? Why is this important? Because look, our human hearts, we are, we're going to look to anything in this world to find worth. We're looking for anything in this world to find value. We're looking for the, 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 the appeasement of this life, whatever it is, the, the praise of others whether it's our family, whether it's a spouse, whether it's coworkers, whether it's the pursuit of things that we feel like give us worth in this life, we're going to look for those things for value, for worth. And Paul says the, the thing that will defeat that in your life begins here. It begins when you realize that through Jesus Christ, you are not only free of guilt of the things you have done, but you now have worth and delight. And when God looks on you, he sees you and he delights in you. He looks at you and he doesn't see the good record that you could bring and blesses you. Rather, he sees what Christ has done, his perfect record, and he delights in you because he delights in him. And that is the beginning of how we can live in the freeness of this life. Now, what does it look like to live in the freeness of this life? 
What does it look like to do that? Well, Paul gives us an example of this here. He actually tells us to live free is actually to live in obedience to Jesus. Now, it it may seem like that, that doesn't go together, but that's actually what he's arguing here in this passage. That to live free is actually to live in obedience to him. Another way we would say that is Jesus becomes our Lord. He becomes our Lord. Now, it's it's interesting. We we say that all the time, simply, like, Jesus is our Lord. Those words just kind of very naturally run off our lips. But what does that mean? Well, at the very least, what Paul's going to teach us, what he does at the end of of chapter 6, is to say that Jesus is our Lord, at the very least, means that we obey him. That that we want to do what he says. I mean, how can, be, how can he be our Lord if, if we don't do what he says, right? And, and, and Paul actually, in verse 18, he says this. He says that in order to, to have Christ as your Lord, you become slaves of righteousness. Now, again, that's alarming because that terminology just hits us differently today. It's hard to get our heads around that today. What does it mean to be slaves of, of righteousness, Right? Or you might think of it this way. Paul actually says in verse 19, this is kind of hard to understand. Like I'm speaking in human terms, it's, it's hard to understand. But it doesn't keep him from using the illustration because he knows that, that, that this is what it looks like to follow the Lord. Now, what does that not mean? Uh, that doesn't mean when we are united with Jesus that, that now we have this like drudgery and, and oppressive religious work we have to do now. To be a slave of, of, of righteousness means that we have this, this drudgery and oppressive life now that we have to do these religious works. It, it doesn't mean that Jesus, as our Lord, he doesn't beat us over uh, our head and, and coerce us into obedience day after day. That is not what it looks like. In fact, Jesus himself tells us what it looks like in the Gospels. He tells us in Matthew, he says this, No, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your weary souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see the point there? Jesus doesn't say, come to me so that you could be free from all restraint. He doesn't say, come to me so that no one can tell you what to do anymore, and you can just live for your own desires. Ironically, that is exactly what we're enslaved to in the first place, right? No, Jesus says there's still a yoke here. But he says, when you're united with me, you get my yoke, and my yoke is easy, and the burden is light, and in me and only in me will you find true freedom in this life, and in me and only in me will you find rest for your soul. Now, how then do we live an empowered life with that reality? Knowing that there's a spiritual deception that we're all struggling with, we're all mastered by something in this life, we're all struggling with that but yet we can find forgiveness through the cross. We can find true freedom by, by, by following Jesus and knowing that he is the Lord of our lives and, and we want to trust him, we want to obey him, but that's hard to do, right? It's hard to do in this life. So how do we then live in this life with an empowered life? Well, look at what Paul continues to write in verse five. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. 
Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul says is that when we experience the grace of God, not only do we experience this true freedom, but we experience a grace that doesn't leave us how we are. But through the love of Jesus, he he begins to change us. Something happens when we're united to Jesus. It's not just that we receive forgiveness of our sins, but we now have a new participation with a new present power in life. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying when you become a Christian, uh, you died with Christ, meaning the benefits of the crucifixion, the, the forgiveness of our sins is yours. But more than that, he says, the power of the resurrection becomes ours as well. He says there's a newness to a power, a newness to a strength to live in this life. And notice in verse 5, he's talking about a future resurrection, but he also is talking about a present experience of that future resurrection. That there is a future resurrection. In verse 5, he says, when we're united to Jesus in his death, we will certainly be united with him in the same kind of resurrection that he's experiencing. In other words, what Paul is saying is the same kind of body that Jesus has right now, you're going to have that one day. He says, that, that means, look, that means that disease and decay and disfigurement and death and weariness that we experience in this life does not have the last say on you. But glory and power, life, joy, strength, that is our future. That is what he's saying here. But notice he says in verse 4 that we actually get to participate in the glory of that future right now. We get to participate in the glory of that future, not just the future of our resurrected bodies, but the glory in the resurrected body of Christ right now. In other words, what Paul is saying is that something in the future has broken into our present and has rushed into our hearts and our lives right now. That Jesus, when we're united with him, his spirit comes and is the down payment deposited for us so that we know this is real. That doesn't mean we're going to live a perfect life right now. It doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean that we're going to be free from failure. It doesn't mean that we're not going to continue to sin and, and fall short uh, of others' expectations and fail others. We're probably going to do that pretty soon after the service if we're honest with ourselves. It doesn't mean that we're not going to experience suffering in this life. And yes, we don't have our resurrected body yet. And yes, we're not living in a resurrected world yet. That's coming. But what Paul is saying here is in the present, in the now, we now have a different kind of power that allows us to have a resilience in this life, a power that leads us not to be crushed by our sin and actually redefines our relationship to sin, a power that can lead us to freedom, freedom of the the future hope of resurrection that we know is ours has come rushing into our lives, which means this today, church. If you're united with Christ, you no longer have to sin. Sin is no longer inevitable for you. The victory has been won on the cross. And what Paul is saying here in verse 11 is you consider yourself now dead to sin and alive to God and Christ. That's what Paul is telling us today is, look, we're free. Stop living as if you're a prisoner. He's saying you've been cured. Stop living as if you have a terminal illness. See, we have to start seeing ourselves as as we are in Christ which means that when we face temptation, we can say by the Spirit of God, that isn't me. That sin belongs to the old me. That old me died with Christ, and now I am free not to do that, but rather offer myself to God as an instrument of righteousness. That is the power you have in life. 
We have to become like people struggling in the gym to try to make our bodies do things that it has never done before, which is me every time I go to the gym because I don't go enough, right? We, ha- we have to do that. Our fallen bodies uh, are designed to be instruments of righteousness, but they have not done that yet, right? We haven't been serving God. We've been serving our sin. We've been serving what masters us. And in doing so, Christ is not saying just, just live a, with a new moral code. No, he's calling us to a new hope through the power of the Holy Spirit to live a new life, to unite ourselves with him, which means that we have a hope that remains when all hope fails in life because of Jesus. It means we have a hope that is there, that when relationships begin to crumble, this does not crumble. When the status that we've built ourselves up to falls, this does not fall. When money doesn't last as long as we want it to last, this lasts. When our career that we build up doesn't go the way we thought it would, this always works out. This is the hope that remains. This is a hope that, that, that is, it gives us an inner resilience in this life, even when things aren't going the way we thought they would. But more importantly than that, he's saying that through the resurrection, we have a power that is now more powerful than our sin. And it's not just more powerful than our sin, church. It's more powerful than our death, he says. And maybe you're a Christian today and you're saying, well, I don't feel like I'm experiencing that type of resurrection power right now. Maybe you're saying, no, I feel frail. I feel weak. I feel like I'm at the mercy of my circumstances always. And the encouragement from this passage, I just want you to let you know, if you are in that moment, that if you believe in Jesus and you are in Christ, that's not going to last. Because the hope we have is that the resurrection is going to win out in your life. But maybe if you're feeling that way and you just feel defeated in this life, you feel like, I don't feel like I'm living an empowered life. Well, we go back to our original question, what is, what is still mastering you? What are you still drawing on for your worth in life right now? See, Jesus tells us a parable in the Gospels that I think helps us understand this. It's a parable of a man who, who finds a treasure in the field. And it wasn't his field, but he, he finds this treasure. And, and in his joy, what he does is he buries the treasure, and then he goes back home and he sells all his possessions so that he have enough money to then go and buy the field. And, and what Jesus is teaching us through this parable is, is a principle that, that there are things that we have to get out of our life that are keeping us from experiencing the fullness of who he is. And what is it for you right now? Uh, what, what are the things, the patterns of living right now that are keeping you captive to your circumstances? What are the patterns of your life right now that are keeping you in despair? What are the habits and the comforts and the escapes that are keeping you from experiencing the joy and the freedom that is yours in Christ right now? What are the other treasures that we're selling our life for right now? What are the things that we are appeasing our hunger but are never satisfying us right now that we're giving ourselves to? Jesus says it, it, is, it is worth selling everything for that field because he's worth it. And because what he has done for us is worth it. As we come to our time of conclusion, Lord's Supper, let's just see how it's worth in the very last verse of this text today, verse 23. It's a very familiar text. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, when you look at this passage, we're not earning anything here. And in fact, the only person earning anything is the one who's a slave to sin. The one who's a slave to sin is earning his wages or her wages, and the salary is death. But thanks be to God that we don't get what we deserve. 
Thanks be to God that through Christ we are given a gift. A great gift of eternal life with Christ our Lord, our master, our boss, the one who bought us with the price, the one who is a sheer delight and joy to serve in this life. So the calling today is to embrace Jesus. That's what Paul wants us to do in, in Romans 6. To embrace him and know that there is resurrection life right now running through your body. And if you feel right now that your life is a mess, an absolute mess, I want you to know there's hope today for you. There is hope today because resurrection power can help rise you out of that mess and give you new life. And if you feel today that you are struggling with guilt of something you've done, or you feel today that you're, you're, you're addicted, there's, there's something mastering you right now, there is hope for you. Romans 6 reminds us there is newness of life, a new life that is available for you in Jesus Christ. You could be united with his death, death free of any condemnation, free of any guilt, and you're united to his resurrection, meaning you have power to conquer that addiction. So embrace Jesus today. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.